I very much love the teaching from the Buddha when he talks of how all experience is led by mind, made by mind, shaped by mind, that with our thoughts we make the world, and that all that we are arises with our thoughts. Clearly when the Buddha was saying that with our thoughts we make the world, what he's really referring to is that how with our thoughts we are constructing our world of experience moment to moment, day by day. And this is what we get really so interested in in this practice because we, we see that the very central teaching of this path, as it is of many paths, is of trying to really understand the nature of distress construction so that we can find the means to bring distress to an end. You know, I think that Buddha was very clear in this, the pivotal role that insight plays, that the world of distressed construction, you know, my narratives, my my stories, my fears, my views of self, my views of others, that clearly this doesn't disappear through some kind of magical thinking or through forcing it to go away or through trying to annihilate it, but through understanding it. As the Buddha so clearly said in his teaching, you know, dukkha is to be understood. It often feels as if that's a kind of orientation in practice and somehow excluding the, the possibilities of, of the great happiness and the great compassion and the great joy that can be born of this practice. But I think we, we hold almost like the two, two aspects of this path at the same time. In one of those aspects of the, the, this path, the, the Buddha recognized very much as we individually recognize the enormous potential of the human heart, the human mind, uh, to create complexity and alienation and estrangement and struggle. And he also recognized, as we recognize, the great potentiality of the human heart for very profound stillness, very profound intimacy and care and sensitivity and compassion. And he said, these are, these are not separate strands. These are, these are two strands that are always interwoven. Now, this first week of the retreat, we're primarily focusing on reflecting on the four ways of establishing mindfulness, because this gives us such a, I think, a, a kind of roadmap of experience. It, it gives us a way of almost unpacking a world of construction that feels at times kind of impenetrable. So today I want to reflect on this second way of establishing mindfulness. And, you know, some of you are not familiar with this roadmap at all. So those of you who are very familiar with it, please forgive me and the rest of us if we feel like we're going over core or basic material. It's actually really not basic material. It's like the four ways of establishing mindfulness, I think, are both the kindergarten and the graduate school of understanding and of liberation. 
So the second way of establishing mindfulness, and I will throw the Pali word in, of Vedana, Vedana. I think it's the, the way of establishing mindfulness that is actually over, often overlooked and neglected because it's just not so much in our face as the body and the mind. You know, we have no problem thing, reflecting on being mindful of the body. We might have problems being mindful of the body, but we have ideas about being mindful of the body. You know, we're very aware of the mind and everything it does. But this second way of establishing ve uh, mindfulness in Vedana or feeling tone, I think is often overlooked. The Buddha was very clear. He, he said, Vedana rules consciousness. Vedana rules consciousness. That Vedana is the king or the queen of consciousness. Because he emphasized the primary role it plays in building the kind of world that each of us lives in moment to moment. Now, for those of you not so familiar with this languaging, Vedana is usually translated as feeling because we don't have a better way of translating it. Some people use a hedonic tone, but that's even more vague to most people. But feeling, so just making a very clear distinction in your own mind that when we use the word feeling, we are absolutely not talking about emotion. We're talking about a hedonic tone that is built into every, that is, permeates every sight, sound, thought, body sensation, taste, touch, and it's pretty simple. They either have this almost pre-verbal impression of being pleasant, almost this pre-verbal impression of being unpleasant, or of being neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Now, think of that, you know, if, if you're sitting and, you know, one of the jets suddenly goes over very loudly, even before you formulate the perception or the concept jet, you might just feel the impact in your body. And if you walk down past the kitchen, you know, and you, you suddenly encounter a smell, before you even get to that point of, oh, wonderful garlic today, you know, there, there might be a, an imprint of pleasant. You go outside with a, without your coat, and before you even get to the point of saying, I'm really cold, you feel the imprint of that sensation. So we're talking about this kind of very primary level of experience, which, of course, is always going to be part of our life, as long as we have thoughts, sights, sounds, tastes, touch, smells. We are going to have Vedana. We are going to have feeling tones. Now, clearly, in itself, this is not an issue. It's ethically neutral. It, it's absolutely not an issue. So then you think, well, why, why did the Buddha dedicate one whole section of the Satipatthana Discourse to contemplating Vedana, when on some level it seems so benign or it seems almost kind of irrelevant. Because this is where our world begins. This is where our world of experience begins. This is where our worlds of construction begin. Because when there's in the absence of mindfulness, in the absence of mindfulness, 
These feeding tones of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant seem to have almost a direct hotline to underlying tendencies or patterns. We feel ourselves moving towards the pleasant. We feel ourselves flinching away from the unpleasant or contracting. In that which is neither, we often find ourselves just feeling a little bit helpless and lost and floundering and not quite knowing what's going on, the feeling that there's something missing or absent. Now you can very much have a sense that in that movement towards the pleasant feeling tone is almost gets overtaken by a sense of hunger or want. You know, I want to keep this, I want to keep this near to me, I want more of this, I want this to last, this makes me feel good, you know, this makes my world look good. You know, when that kind of hunger or craving begins to be triggered, you can have a sense in the immediacy of that kind of flinching away from the unpleasant, how often it really is the beginning of a process, isn't it? Oh, I really don't want this. You know, I really can't bear this. This shouldn't be happening. This is not what I thought I was getting into. You know, how do I get away from this? So Vedana, the imprint of Vedana, kind of hooking into these underlying patterns, is the beginning of a process of construction and often a behavioral process too. Please bear that in mind. You know, how often, frequently, that, that aversion or disliking or not wanting is then followed by a certain pattern of behavior, isn't it? How do I get away from this? How do I make distance? How do I get rid of this? How do I avoid this? Whereas craving also triggers a behavioral pattern. You know, I'm going to just linger in the hallway for the next hour smelling the garlic, you know, or, you know, I'm going to be doing this in order to kind of keep a certain kind of experience in, in place. Also, you know, from the perspective of, of Buddhist psychology, we see a, a process being in set in motion which becomes increasingly, increasingly contracted. So we feel, the feeling tones tap into underlying tendencies of aversion or craving or confusion. When those underlying tendencies are fed and fueled by thought or by behavior, they tend to strengthen into a sense of clinging and holding and grasping, which actually becomes the next step in constructing a view of how the world is, how I am, how you are, that has all begun with this kind of simple feeling tone and what is happening with this feeling tone. Now if we were to say that mindfulness has a job, we would say that the work of mindfulness is to sever the link between the feeling tone of experience and the underlying tendencies of craving and aversion and, and confusion. It is actually the kind of first primary and actually one of the most powerful aspects of what mindfulness can do. Being aware that when we, we talk about you know, the cultivating mindfulness, we're talking about ways of, of almost liberating the moment. 
And we're learning to, to liberate the moment from the contractedness of aversion and craving and confusion by severing that link. Now, it's probably very obvious to us, you know, that we, we live in, in very, very different worlds of experience. You know, if you were, if we invited everyone up here to have a turn at the mic and just report how you're seeing yourself and how you're seeing the world in this moment, we would probably be a little bit surprised by the range of worlds that are held within this room right now. A lot of our life we go through it just imagining that my world of experience is shared by the entire universe. And it is true. You know, a person wakes up, one person wakes up in the morning and hears the, the rain outside the window, you know, and you can perhaps immediately hear that as being unpleasant, oh, the aversion, my walk's not going to happen today. You know, why is this climate like this? You know, now I'm going to have to be inside all day. Another person, of course, might wake and hear exactly the same sound and think, ah, oh, recovering from this long drought and the reservoirs are going to fill and it's so wonderful and I love the peacefulness and that kind of cloisteredness brought about by a rainy day. We're very, very different worlds of experience, which we rarely appreciate. You know, there's a kind of a quote that goes something like that, that most of us go through life imagining our minds to be something like a mirror, more or less reflecting life as it actually is, not appreciating that our minds are the principal element in the creation of that world or that life of this moment. So this whole practice is actually, you know, teaching us to, to question our worlds, to question our worlds of construction, to question our worlds of, of views, whether they're imposed upon other people or imposed upon ourselves or upon life in, gen in general. And that begins, one very powerful way of doing that is to begin to reflect on the impact of feeling tones in experience as it impacts you through a single day. Sometimes you might notice it, you might actually become aware of that impact when you're already off in the behavioral mechanisms, you know? When you find yourself kind of, you know, lingering at the notice board with a sense of hope, something interesting might appear or whether you know you suddenly decide I can't go to that sitting you know or you know when I, I suddenly find myself uh, uh, I, I wake up in the morning and I, I don't want to get up or I jump out of bed you might just notice the behavioral aspects of Vedna tone impacting us we might hear it in our thoughts when our thoughts start to have a sort of emotional continuum within them of, you know, of, of aversion or irritation or, you know, uh, dwelling upon what's missing. You know, there's a lot that's gone on before we get to those places. There's a lot that's gone on before we get to the places of feeling just so imprisoned or so captured by our constructions and our reactions to them.
<coughs> the Buddha had an abiding interest in understanding the architecture of this world of experience, just as he had an abiding interest in understanding the architecture of, of a world of distress or pain or struggle. And I think, it, you know, what he very much did in this teaching was, was to invite us to have a very similar interest in understanding the architecture of our world. Now, he proposed really quite a simple formula. It, it's simple, but it happens so quickly that it's, it's not so simple to track this. But he proposed a very simple formula for understanding this architecture and this, this constructing. He says what we, and he traced it in a, in a sort of, in a cognitive chain. He says that what we contact, we feel. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate about. What we proliferate about becomes the shape of our mind and the shape of our world. Personally, I find this a really elegant formula, that what we contact, we feel, what we feel, we perceive, what we perceive, we think about, what we think about, we proliferate about, what we proliferate about becomes the shape of our mind and the shape of our world. And I wonder in casting your mind back today, if you can remember, recall one single construction where you can trace that process through. What we contact, we feel. This is, this is a, a kind of very neutral place. Contact, the meeting of the sense door with the sensory information and the sensing. The eye meets the sight and there's seeing. The ear meets the sound and there's hearing. The tongue meets the, ta the, the, the taste and there's tasting. The mind meets the thought and there's thinking. The body meets the sensation and there's sensing or experiencing. This, this we have a thousand, ten thousand moments of contact in a single day. We're not trying to avoid them. We're not trying to, to push them away. It's just recognizing this is a fabric of being an alive and relational and functioning human being, is to have thousands and thousands of moments of contact every day. Now, those contacts will register in a feeling tone. Pleasant or unpleasant or neither. What we contact, we fear. What we feel, we perceive. Now, Vedana as a feeling tone triggers perception almost immediately, doesn't it? We, we name what we're feeling. We name what we're contacting. You know, we label it. Oh, it's a bird. It's 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 the garbage truck. You know, it it's the bell. You know, it it it's uh, it, it, it's it's John or Fred. You know, or you know, it's it's that sensation. It, you know, it's it's the body. It's it's a pain. Hmm? We we per perception is almost it's organizing the world, isn't it? Perception is organizing the world and. As far as that goes, of course, it's a very also a necessary part of being a functioning human being, able to navigate our way through this life in a competent and relatively safe way. 
Now, Vedana is triggering not only perception, but is often also triggering these underlying patterns of aversion and craving. So it's almost like these three things are coming together almost in the same moment. There's the feeling tone, there's the naming of it, recognizing it, making it familiar, and perception is also bringing in these underlying tendencies into that mix. So it's not only that something is unpleasant, I don't like it because I remember how I didn't like it in the past. So functional perception organizes the world in a very helpful way. What these underlying tendencies do is they turn perception into emotional organizing of the world. I know what to be near and I know what I want to stay away from. I know what I like and what I don't like. You know, and I know what I'm moving towards and what I'm moving away from and what's good and what's bad and what's beautiful and what's unbeautiful. So these underlying tendencies are starting to organize our world in an emotional organization. This is not always helpful. <laughs> I think you can understand why. It means that we're always seeing things through the eyes of the past. We, we don't allow ourselves to be surprised. It becomes so difficult to see anything anew or to respond anew because we're keep, we, perception triggering these patterns is constantly bringing the past into the present over and over again. It's beautiful because I know it was beautiful before. And it's ugly because that's how I've experienced it before. And this is something I move towards because I know it's intrinsically somehow something I want. We feel in perception our designators triggering those underlying tendencies. Now, mindfulness, as I mentioned, I think it actually has two jobs in this domain. Now, the first of these jobs is to, as I already mentioned, to sever that link that feels so automatic and so fast between the pleasant and craving, between the unpleasant and aversion, and between that which is neither pleasant or unpleasant and just not knowing what's going on. That's really the first job of mindfulness, to be able to stay with a sensory impression, a thought, a body sensation, a sound, a sight, without this movement towards or away from. Just to know in the seeing, the seeing, in the hearing, the hearing, in the sensing, the sensing. Not having to build that complex world of, of construction and fabrication. But the second job of mindfulness is, is really to almost clean up the field of perception. It's almost kind of move, being able to step out of this, this field of emotional organizing perception into perception just as it is. Some of you are familiar with that quote from William Blake where he says, if the doors of perception were cleansed, the world would appear as it is, infinite. Have you noticed what happens when we're constantly seeing the moment through the eyes of the past? It makes it very finite, doesn't it? It makes it very finite. You know, if I, if I give you a very, you know, kind of very simple example, you know, maybe, maybe you turn up on this retreat and suddenly discover, you know, one of your fellow yogis was someone you sat with 10 years ago who was 
really an irritating yogi, you know, maybe they did a lot of heavy breathing or they were restless or whatever. You haven't seen them in 10 years, but the moment your eyes fall upon them, what do you see? This infinite fluid unfolding person? Or do you see, oh, there's that really, really irritating heavy breathing yogi. We make the world so finite simply through that emotional organization, through, through through that distorted perception. So part of mindfulness, the second aspect of mindfulness, is actually, I, I almost think of it as, as this kind of cleaning up the doors of perception so that there can be a, actually a movement towards that which is infinite rather than that which is finite. And how do we know if something has been made finite? We hear it in our views. I am. You are. This is. The conclusion, the, the closed room, the closed door that, that it arises so often sometimes very quietly and sometimes very loudly in our thinking. I am. You are. This is. How do we know that? has perception covered by colored by underlying tendencies which brings in the whole world of association emotional memory actually is freezing the moment into how it has been experienced in the past think of the role that vedana is playing here the contact we see the person coming through the door, the unpleasant feeling tone, the labeling, it's that person again. We begin to think about them. Oh yes, you know, I remember them well. I remember them well. We begin to proliferate about it. I wonder how they ended up being such a, a difficult person. You know, we end up moving to behavior and making sure I'm sitting far away from them. Think of the role that Vedana is playing in that. Think of what it would be like if we could have that seeing without that triggering of all of that extra. We do this not only to others, this happens very much in relationship to ourselves. You know, perhaps you've had an illness in the past and you sit and there's a sensation in your back, it's unpleasant. After, ah, my back. Oh, my back that used to be so bad. You know, we begin to think about it, dwell upon it, proliferate about it, becomes a shape of our mind, contracted, contracted. What perception is doing in this process of creating finiteness, which is something so important to see, is that this emotionally laden perception is actually positing a Vedana tone as being implicit in the object. You see that? That is beautiful. That is ugly. Now what happens with that? The moment that we have posited Vedana as being implicit in an object, we have also posited a sense of self, an independent self 
existence in that object. That's beautiful. Ah, it has the power to make me happy. It has the power to make me happy. Oh, that's ugly, you know? Or, or that, that's, that's really unattractive. Ah, that has the power to make me unhappy. Now, can we see what happens then? The underlying patterns get repeated. Oh, that's beautiful. It has the power to make me happy. I'm moving towards it. I want it. How do I get it? Oh, that, that's ugly. That has the power to make me unhappy. I move away from it. And I'm reinforcing those underlying tendencies. So the next time I make contact with that person, object, thought, sensation, I've already got a whole history that's being reinforced and replayed and reinforced and replayed and seems to become more true and more real in every recounting. In every recounting. So this is what we're learning. We're actually learning to, to give very, very careful attention to the impact of Vedana or feeling tones in our day. How they trigger the, these patterns of, of approach and avoidance. How they play a part in triggering that, triggering to be in a world of, of agitation. How they how the perception distorted is triggering us into a world of reinforcing those underlying patterns and into a sense of finiteness. Into a sense of finiteness. So we listen as as we attend really as carefully as we can to the moments of contact that arise in the day. It's not like we have to go looking for them. You're here every moment. So we attend as carefully as we can to those moments of contact. We're aware of the Vedana tone of pleasant or unpleasant or neither. But we're very careful with sensing how much that is not implicit in that contact. It's not implicit in that sense impression. It's how I'm feeling it because I felt it that way before. Now, the, in terms of implicit Vedana tones, you know, it's not like it's all in our mind. Um, you know, the Buddha was very clear that there's a, a kind of a grouping of Vedana tones that are actually kind of implicit. You know, if someone came through the door and walked through the hall and kicked us all in the back, I doubt if anybody here would say that was pleasant. You know, that, that hurts. It's unpleasant, you know. Illness hurts. Bodies hurt, you know. Um, it, it's, it, it's, not, it's not something we try and imagine, I'm just making this up, it's how it is. It's an even smaller group of psychological and emotional experience that the Buddha says is intrinsically uh, painful, and that is grief. Much of the rest of it is actually quite personal. Much of the rest of it is quite personal when we say, you know, that's pleasant and that's unpleasant. It can change in a moment, can't it? You know, something that is pleasant in one moment we meet as being quite unpleasant in the next moment. You know, if you're sitting there, you know, contorted in pain, you know, that sound of that bell is so nice. You know, if you're st sitting there on the, on the precipice of awakening, that sound of the bell is so unpleasant, you know, it's an interruption. So it's just being sensitive to, to how that shifts in a single day, dependent on so many factors. 
So we're learning to be as mindful as we can of these contact moments, of these moments where we really sense this, this, this feeling of finiteness. We're being as mindful as we can be of these moments of proliferating and dwelling, where we see that there's, there's a tone within there that is really linked to a contact moment. We start to be as mindful as we can be of the shape of our mind in every moment through the day and how the shape of that mind both has its own Vedana tone, but when the mind is shaped, say, by irritation or anxiety or anticipation, it's likely also related to a process of much that has gone on before. It's a really quite simple in a way, and it's quite complex in a way. You know, the simple part is simply becoming more and more sensitized to our world of experience and how it's being shaped. You know, the, the more challenging part is beginning to sort of have sufficient mindfulness in place to trace these processes through from the moment of contact to wherever we wake up, you know, in, in contractedness or in a huge mind state or a thought storm, beginning to trace those processes through. I think the relief on that is this is actually a process. You know, the process of construction is actually a process. And we can begin to sense it and to find the ways to, to not be held within or not trapped within that finiteness. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.